0: Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science.
1: Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Morgan Levine from Altos Lab on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You got your PhD from the University of Southern California in 2015. After that, you moved on to do a postdoc with Steve Howard at UCLA. You then became Assistant Professor of Pathology at Yale School of Medicine, and since January this year, you are a funding PI of Altos Lab in San Diego, California. A question I'd like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place, and then in pursuing a career in science?
2: Um, So me, I actually became interested in aging in the first place, and I think part of this was because um, my father was a lot older when I was born, so he was in his mid-50s, and so I was, you know, at a very young age, very aware of, you know, aging and worrying about, you know, my parents' mortality and risk of developing diseases, and then it wasn't until um, kind of the end of college that I actually found that there's a whole field of biology that focuses on what happens to people as they age and how this is actually underlying why some people are more or less at risk of different diseases. And once I, once I discovered that and felt like, Oh, there's actually something we can do to, you know, hopefully prevent disease for as long as possible, then that's kind of what excited me.
1: Okay. And then you chose actively to go in this area.
2: Yeah. So um, yeah. So I, I have been working in biology of aging since, I started my PhD for the most part, and yeah. Okay. Yeah, continue that.
1: So let's come to your sign that centers around, as you said, epigenetic clocks, epigenetic reprogramming, cellular aging, and and disease. Um, I want to start in the year two thousand fifteen. Uh, you were with, postdoc with Stephen Horward then. So what made you decide to do your postdoc in his lab?
2: Yeah, so i would actually been working on trying to develop ways to quantify biological aging prior to joining Steve's lab. Um, but up to that point, I wasn't using epigenetic data. I was using other types of data, whether it's um, like clinical data, like you would find in electronic health records or other types of omics data. And then um, around the same time I was developing these, Steve came out with his epigenetic clock paper. Um, and I was at USC and he's at UCLA, so it's just across town. And so I went over and met with him and decided that, you know, to me, the the power of the epigenetic clock uh, estimates, like how well they track age and actually their prediction in terms of some outcomes was what made me really want to focus on understanding that.
1: As yes, you just said um, he invented the epigenetic clock. Could you maybe briefly explain the concept of, of how it works?
2: Yeah. So I think even as early as the 1980s, people actually saw that you see changes in DNA methylation. So this is methylation at these CKG dinucleotides um, that's correlated with age. And uh, it wasn't until I think 2011 that Steve was actually on a paper. He wasn't the first author, senior author, but he was on this paper where they actually found that you could create a clock through machine learning to, you know, they train a predictor of age. And you could get a really high correlation, a really high prediction of age. I think, you know, if you have a wide enough age range sample, you're getting correlations well above 0.9, often 0.95 to 0.98 with age. Um, And then uh, a few years later, I think 2014, if I have my days correct, no, maybe 2012, I don't know, something around that. uh, Steve actually developed, you know, what he coined the epigenetic clock, which was He took, I think, about 52 different tissue types, all non-cancer, and pooled them, and then um, using DNA methylation array data, so about 20,000 CPGs where he had methylation in bulk, trained a predictor of chronological age, and it worked across all the tissue types. And this was kind of the start of the epigenetic clock field.
1: So the first publication from your postdoc or the publications from your postdoc were also published in 2015. So I guess this was already the the year when um, the original epigenetic clock clock paper came out. Um, There you used the epigenetic clock to measure the intrinsic epigenetic age acceleration and whether this could help to predict lung cancer uh, in the beginning. So what did you do there and were you able to use the epigenetic clock as a predictor for lung cancer?
2: Yeah. So prior to me joining the lab, there was a lot of work on just developing a clock or, or a few of these clocks. And then when I when I joined the lab, the question was, what are the different things beyond age that they can predict, right? Because, you know, the goal isn't just to predict someone's chronological age. It costs, you know, hundreds of dollars to measure this in a person. So that's not very useful unless you're doing forensics or something. Um, so for kind of biomedical or biological sciences, the question is, can it predict disease or death beyond age? Um, so for this, we kind of started with a few different outcomes. So one of them was uh, lung cancer, where we took one of these epigenetic clocks. So the intrinsic one is similar to the four, the original Horvath clock, but it adjusts for cell composition. And basically asked the question of among people, especially people who are current smokers, will it predict who in the future is most at risk of developing lung cancer, independent of their chronological age or other kind of covariates.
1: So how did that turn out? Was it like a good predictor?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's definitely significant. I wouldn't say it's like we can predict with 100% or 90% accuracy, but it it was highly, I don't know the exact effect sizes, but it, it was a sizable increase in risk of lung cancer for every one year, increase in epigenetic age.
1: Yeah, I mean, in the end, it's still biology, right? I mean, it's not like a single factor to to all diseases, probably. Yep,
2: exactly.
1: So a, studio, a, a study that was published in the same year focused on the epigenetic age of the brain, more specifically of the prefrontal cortex and the connection to diseases like Alzheimer's, because this is also highly connected to age. So were you able to find a correlation there?
2: Yeah, so... Um... We basically the the amazing thing to me and actually what got me so interested in epigenetic clocks is you can apply the exact same clock or the exact same method to most any tissue or or cell type. So it's it's kind of tissue agnostic, whereas you know if you use other data modalities, it's usually you have a clock specific to a tissue. So um, the great thing was we could use these exact same clocks we have used in blood and look at them in brain. So we had uh, postmortem brain samples. Uh, from a study called RossMap, which is the Religious Order Study and Memory and Aging Project at a Rush University. Um, and for these people, they also had really good um, kind of neuropathological data. So they it wasn't just a cognitive assessment for diagnosing, but they actually knew kind of uh, amyloid load and neurofibrillary uh, tangles and all these things. So what we found, again, independent of age, so after you adjust or account for age and sex and other things, that your epigenic age, the epigenic age of these individuals, was associated with the level of kind of neuropathological um, deposits that are Alzheimer's related.
1: Yeah, I mean, wh- and in the first study, you t- took blood, right? And yeah, mm-hmm. you looked at biopsies or at, at postmortem yep. um, tissues. So, t- yeah. t- 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 so this is not really practical for a like bi- uh, biomarker approach <laughs> uh, yeah,
2: no, this is not predicting future risks i mean most people don't want to give a, a brain biopsy just to see if they're at risk but, yeah. but do you is
1: it also possible to use like blood to kind of or or other like easier accessible probes to to look at um like brain diseases that are linked to to, epi- to, to aging at least
2: Yeah, so we're actually working on this now. So I would say with the current epigenetic clocks that are out there, they have a very weak association when they're measured in in something like blood or saliva um, or buccal, with Alzheimer's disease or or cognitive functioning or any of these kind of brain-related outcomes. Um, My lab actually has been developing, and hopefully we'll put the preprint out in the coming month, Uh, a way to actually try and get a better brain-specific measure from blood. Um, And at least right now, it's validating in independent data. Uh, We don't have like a long time frame to look at like Alzheimer's diagnosis, but it is associated with kind of cognitive functioning and decline with age.
1: Yeah, I think uh, to your future work will come uh, at the end of this interview. Um, next, um, or the next thing that that I, f- I found that you worked on was that you looked at how menopause accelerates biological aging. And this was also done using the epigenetic clock as biomarker. Um, so what was this the uh, kind of same approach that you took there?
2: Yeah, so this one, um, we looked at for this both blood and buccal. Um, epithelial uh, DNA methylation, and uh, for blood specifically, there is an association. Um, unfortunately, for this, we we really wanted to have kind of pre- and post-menopause to try and figure out is it accelerated epigenetic aging that is that is kind of driving early menopause, or whether menopause itself was actually a, an event or kind of this stage that would accelerate epigenetic aging. So,
1: looking for um, the hen and or the egg. <laughs>
2: Yeah, exactly. Um, we didn't have that kind of data, but we did a few different kind of techniques to try and and weed this out. So we had women who had undergone surgical menopause, so kind of an elected, so oophorectomy. Um, and we also had uh, SNP data so we could run kind of a Mendelian randomization to try and get at kind of causal timing a bit more. And at least Um, While we can't say conclusively, the data does seem to suggest that menopause seems to be an event that actually accelerates epigenetic age rather than kind of your epigenetic Mm -hmm. age prior, you know, driving the age at which you develop menopause.
1: So next to the epigenetic clock, there are... Other clocks that were developed shortly after uh, the epigenetic clock was published uh, and also yourse- you yourself worked on an improved version of the epigenetic clock called DNAM, so for methylation uh, phenol Um Could you briefly go over other clocks uh, that were developed and how the, they compared to the epigenetic clock?
2: Yeah, so we usually like to kind of group epigenetic clocks into kind of two, now maybe three bins. So kind of first generation clocks. Um, so the first one was the 2011 clock that Steve was a part of. Uh, then there was a blood specific clock uh, developed by Hanum et al. And then Steve's kind of famous epigenetic clock where he coined the term epigenetic clock. Um, when I joined the lab, my one thing that I really wanted to work on was this idea that we're not actually trying to predict chronological age, because again, as I mentioned, it's not that useful. And actually we know people age at different rates So we don't want a perfect predictor of chronological age. Whenever I presented epigenetic clocks, people would always say, oh, can you get a better correlation with chronological age? And my answer is I don't want one. I want kind of that discordance to be biologically meaningful. Uh, So I, this is where kind of working on DNA and pheno age came about. And um, for that, I actually borrowed some of the work I'd done in my PhD, which was making these biological age estimates from other types of data. So in this case, it was kind of clinical chemistry, like your basic lab tests. Um, so what we did was I made a predictor of mortality or, or remaining life expectancy based on these clinical markers, and then predicted that score using the DNA methylation. So that score we call phenotypic age. So that's why it's called DNA and pheno age.
1: So was this then not just based on like one tissue, but like an organismal um, clock then?
2: No, so this one um, was actually just trained in blood, but what we found was similar to the original kind of pan-tissue Horvath clock, it actually tracks aging across all the same tissues. So even though it's trained in blood, you can apply it to liver or brain or skin or you name it.
1: That, that's really uh, astounding that it, it works. Do you, or can you speculate why that is? Or is it like that every yeah. organ would shed cells into the bloodstream?
2: Yeah. So, you know, part of it was, oh, maybe it's just picking up some immune cells or immune infiltration in some of these other, but actually it's not because now we can even see that it works in vitro and, you know, homogeneous cell types. So um, it, it does seem to be something universal about these methylation changes that is again, tissue and cell agnostic. They're happening not necessarily in every single tissue at the same rate, but there does seem to be this kind of shared change in methylation pattern across different tissue and cell types.
1: In the times of the COVID pandemic, it is especially interesting to investigate causes for severe COVID-19 cases. Uh, In a study in 2021, you hypothesized that increased biological age beyond chronological age might be driving disease-related trends in COVID-19 severity. Um, Did that hold true? And if so, what did you find?
2: Yeah, so we we actually did conduct a study for this. We didn't have methylation or any epigenetic data, but we used the clinical-based phenotypic age measure that we'd actually trained an epigenetic clock to predict. Um, so we we looked at uh, UK Biobank data, and we had these clinical measures done about ten years prior to when the pandemic started. So this has nothing to do about you know who actually contracted COVID nineteen. So this is looking at people 10 years prior, and we asked the question of people who were predicted to be older based on this phenotypic age measure relative to their chronological age, whether, you know, in the year 2020 and beyond, if they were diagnosed with COVID, whether they suffered more severe symptoms or death. Um, and actually, what we found was that it was significantly predictive of both the severity of COVID symptoms and also whether people were more at risk of death. Um, which makes sense because a lot of the things that we knew was predisposing kind of severity in COVID were aging-related things.
1: Yeah, that's that's very true. And and you think that this, I mean, maybe it's an the obvious question, but
2: uh, you think that as
1: ah the, the the accelerated epigenetic age is then the cause for the severity of the the disease or one of the the causes of the severity.
2: Yeah, I don't know if it's methylation status itself whether it's a cause. It, it might be, but it could just be that it's a good proxy or a good readout of just physiologically how healthy or how robust a system, a human organism system is. Um, yeah, we still—it's very hard with the epigenetic clocks to say anything about causality. We we know very little in terms of whether they're even causally implicated in the aging process or just a good way to read out what might be going on.
1: But in this case, it would probably come down to the age of the immune system then.
2: probably. Yeah, so exactly. So it's kind of how old your immune system looks, right? So you might be six years old, but is your immune profile more like someone who's 70, more like someone who's 50? And then that seemed to be predictive of kind of how you would respond to getting COVID.
1: Uh, when you started your own lab you further worked on comparing and refining epigenetic clocks um, therefore you used multiomics data to compare 11 epigenetic clocks and in the end developed a me- meta clock to improve prediction for mortality so how did you do that and what did you uh, what were the results in the end
2: yeah so when i started my lab um, i've continued work on developing epigenetic clocks but really what i became very interested in was trying to understand what we were capturing, why they worked, why different clocks gave you different answers. Um, And not just that one's always right and the others are just not as good, but, you know, some work really well in certain applications, others in different applications. Um, And what we found for that was that, you know, there is kind of a general core signal captured across all the epigenetic clocks. Um, But then they also kind of have these differences between them. Um, And, you know, some of them track. Things in vitro a little bit better. So, kind of uh, cell state transitions and things like cellular senescence, either through uh, continuous passaging or oncogene induced senescence. Um, Others were really good at differentiating tumors from normal uh, tissue. And then, of course, they kind of differ in terms of their ability to predict aging related outcomes. Um, And then for that one, for the meta clock, what we did was kind of break up to some degree. And this is actually something we've continued to work on after this um, much more in depth, but we tried to break up the epigenetic clocks to find kind of core signals that are shared, but also individual ones that are distinct. And then how can you actually combine those in a more meaningful way to get a more predictive uh, clock? So we were able to develop a clock that was highly predictive of mortality risk, also track things like senescence or other things in vitro and, and clearly distinguished kind of tumor versus normal tissue
1: so how would you then express the mortality risk is it like um percent of probability of death in like today or, <laughs> or
2: I mean- yeah so they're using um like a co- like a proportional hazard model so it's like a, a a basically a time till death so you can you can calculate different things from that so you can say you can calculate out someone's let's say 10 year mortality risk or 20 year mortality risk um, or just kind of over the length of the time course, how much relative to kind of the, the general population, someone is more or less at risk of dying.
1: You then also tried to find a connection between epigenetic aging, epigenetic clocks, and to the molecular mechanism behind those processes. Um, there was only one study in rats and one in breast cancer patients. I think uh, that's correct. So what can you say about those connections in those uh, sample types or uh, model organi- or organisms? Uh,
2: yeah, so we... Yeah, so the, ni- the other thing about epigenetic clocks is they don't just work in humans you can use them in different mammalian species and actually Steve Horvath has done a lot of work on applying them to lots of different mammals um but I did uh this one study where we developed an epigenetic clock for rats um and and for this we actually had some intervention data we we also then applied it to mouse data where we had interventions from caloric restriction and actually observed that you get a, um, decrease in epigenetic age, per, um, in response to cloric restriction, but also a decrease in the rate at which it will increase over time. So kind of a slowing or deceleration of the clock. Um, we also had samples from cellular programming where we had, I think it was kidney and lung fibroblasts converted back to iPSCs. And again, we show almost a complete reversal of the epigenetic clock, which is fairly consistent, um, with other studies looking at that. Um, and then at the end, you know, the thing that we were interested in is, is this really being driven by certain types of methylation changes, um, or is it kind of more broad? Um, and I think for that study, it seemed to be more of these intergenic, or uh, CBGs in these intergenic regions that might be associated with a kind of loss of heterochromatin with aging. And again, this is something that fits with what a few other groups are finding and that we're continuing to follow up.
1: Yeah, before I, go, uh, I have another question to so the epigenetics behind that. Um, I think uh, that the advantage of applying the epigenetic clocks to, uh, yeah, model organism like rats or mice is that you can more easily manipulate those systems, right, and, f- and maybe causal links between clocks and or epigenetic markers and the epigenetic clock. Then,
2: yeah, actually. That's if for understanding the biology of them, it probably needs to be done either in vitro or in these model organisms. And the other nice thing is it's really it's much easier to get multiple tissue and cell types from the same animal. So for humans, we usually have, you know, a kidney sample from you know this study and brain sample from a different study. But you know, it's really nice to say within an organism how much do their tissues differ in terms of kind of the rate of this uh, epigenic aging changes. But yeah, like you you said, you can also do interventions or try and manipulate this, try and accelerate it or slow it and get a little bit more mechanistic understanding, hopefully.
1: And I mean, there have been some studies lately that showed that like the genetic background of a a mouse or a model organism would be important to biological functions. So this would also be then something that could be interesting, right, to just have different genetic background of different mice strains to see what the effect on the epigenetic clock might be.
2: Yeah, exactly. And then, yeah, there are also, you know, these more di- diverse outbred mice too, where you can do more kind of better genetic studies too to understand this.
1: So you mentioned that there is some connections to epigenetics that you m- might have looked into uh, connected to heterochromatin. So what could you say about about this, the connection or, or the influence of epigenetics to those if it's already called the epigenetic?
2: Um, I mean, it's still really early days. And, you know, this is something we are following up on. And really, the only way that we've been able to assess this so far, we haven't had good multi epigenetic omics data. So we usually just have methylation data. in in a lot of these studies, we're, we're generating other data to link it to other epigenetic um, omics outcomes. But what we usually do is just say, okay, we're going to look at where the sites are in the genome and then go to, you know, public databases. So one is, you know, Syscrum, there's other ones, or or ENCODE and say, oh, are these in regions that are, tend to be, you know, marked by certain histone modifications or maybe it's more intergenic regions or associated perhaps with with heterochromatin. And we are making a leap to say that we think this is uh, indicative of the loss of heterochromatin, but it's, it's something. Hopefully, we'll have more data on soon.
1: Yeah, so a lot of work has uh, was done regarding epigenetic clocks, but it seems that the real work is still in front of us, right? So finding connections and causalities between those observational clocks and the mechanisms behind aging, and you're working exactly in this on this intersection, um, especially now with the move to to San Diego. So what are you working on right now, and what are your plans for, let's say? the next five years <laughs> can you share some things that you are that are going on in your lab or that you want to start now in your new lab
2: yeah so i think we'll we'll continue to follow up on can we gain any mechanistic understanding into what these epigenetic age changes are um, i think you know the past five years let's say maybe even 10 years since epigenic clocks were developed that was kind of showing that they were even worth exploring so we you know, they are biologically meaningful and they are very interesting in terms of how they can be universally applied across tissues and now, as we see across different mammalian species. But then, yeah, the next, I think, major thing that needs to be developed is can we understand what they are, what drives them, what could potentially slow them or reverse them, um, and also what links them to the outcomes that we observe. So we see, you know, they're predictive of things, but we have no idea kind of, the pathway in which that would happen. And going back to the earlier thing about causality, again, we need to have a better understanding of whether they're actually causal versus just correlative. So my lab is very interested in looking at mechanisms, not just at the entire epigenetic clock level, um, but actually what we think is that epigenetic clocks are composites that actually capture different types of methylation changes they probably each have their own mechanistic explanation and maybe even their own kind of consequence in terms of health. So we've been using a lot of kind of bioinformatics techniques to try and deconstruct or break up the epigenetic clocks and kind of bin CPGs into what we call modules or or different kinds of what we think might be mechanistically connected CPGs. Um, And then from there, it's, you know, can we take other types of omics data? So Uh, measuring histone modifications or things like um, high c or ATAC, and trying to really understand what what this phenomenon is and whether it is you know indicative of changes in terms of kind of conformational changes or what might be driving it and whether you can manipulate this Um, yeah
1: if you if you needed to take a guess do you think it's more like a spatial like a local like a uh, genetic, so where it's located on the on the primary sequence of the DNA, or is it like more a molecular uh, thing? That what kind of factors are then bound to the DNA, or is it?
2: Yeah, I, it might be more that I don't think it's specific to certain genes. Um, so people always say, "Oh, did you run enrichment for the genes, you know, in the clocks or whatever?" But um, I actually don't think that is that you, It's oh, it's this gene you have the promoter, you know, that's losing or gaining methylation, or in that case, it you gaining. Um, because actually what you can do is you can train a clock and then you can actually throw out CPGs that were associated with any of the genes that actually got selected. And you can train an entirely new clock with totally different genes and get almost the exact same score. So to me, that suggests it's not gene specific. And also when we get these, they're in very, you know, disparate parts. And even when we're grouping them into modules, half the time you have CPGs not even on the same chromosome grouped into the same model so they're they're they have co-methylation that changes together but in terms of genomic region they at least maybe maybe 3d confirmation but they don't seem to be that linked so yeah i think
1: yeah so what kind of model organisms are you now focusing on is it uh, the rat and mouse models
2: uh yeah so we're doing yeah we're only doing kind of human uh tissue and rodent models but we're doing a lot of in vitro models so a lot more kind of cell culture work less actual organismal or tissue models
1: so this would then be more like cellular senescence and not so much um organismal aging then
2: yeah so so the nice thing is we can actually uh recapitulate the same epigenetic clock signal in cells in a dish so we've done different cell types so we're looking Ah, uh, specifically things like astrocytes or fibroblasts, or a little bit of uh, hepat- hepatocytes, and we can actually accelerate the aging of the cells. And and with reprogramming, you can reverse it. And you can use the same exa- the same exact clocks that you would use in a tissue. We can actually train clocks um, in using our in vitro models that actually then work when you apply them to organisms and tissues. So. Again, it seems to be this universal phenomenon that we can actually model in
1: vitro. Yeah, it seems to be very robust. That's what I wanted to say. <laughs> yeah. So how do you then accelerate aging? Is it like the same factors that you would? Um, because every, obviously this all comes down to how should I change my life to to stop <laughs> um, or my aging process? So is this the same kind of things that you use in the cell, uh, the cell culture? Like... Uh, Don't give them so much food, uh, I mean, food, nutrients. (laughs) um, Or do you have like oncogene-induced senescence or or are you using just everything?
2: Yeah, probably. I mean, the simplest way is you can just passage them. So they'll actually increase very incrementally as a function of just kind of population doubling. Yeah, I did that
1: that in my PhD, but that's a lot of work.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I have one student who has... Uh, current culture that's over 600 days old so it's very diligent <laughs> yeah he has tons of he's been doing a lot of cell culture but yeah you can we can passage them you know usually up till senescence um we also have immortalized them and just keep them going and again you still it still shows this increase um in epigenetic age with passaging um then you can do anything else just like stress out a cell right you can you know, irradiate them, you can change um, oxygen levels or, you know, yeah, on, you can do oncogene.
1: Yeah, that sounds very interesting, but 600 days is, is a lot of time.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I didn't tell me I to keep going. <laughs> it's right.
1: So to finish off this interview, I have two more generic questions. Uh, the first one, did you at what point of your career face a situation that you reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm still struggling with how to best figure out mechanisms of these clocks. I don't know if I would say I'm I'm at a dead end, but there is, you know, a little bit of question on how to move forward. I think the hard thing is because they're so um, kind of multifactorial, we're looking at so many CPGs simultaneously and you can narrow it down, but then, you know, you know that you're not even looking at all... The possible ones that actually matter so that that has been really hard on how do you make sense of all of these very heterogeneous cpgs that are somehow producing this signal um but yeah so far i wouldn't say i've had a dead end on anything i think you know you get a little bit of a glimmer and then maybe go in this direction and you know it's a little bit of a random walk i guess <laughs>
1: <laughs> so in the last yeah, almost uh, 35 minutes. Uh, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give us a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview?
2: Um, so for me, I think the most exciting findings are um, have to do with kind of this deconstruction of the epigenetic clocks. And, you know, we always talk about epigenetic aging as a singular phenomenon. Um, but actually, it's really we're just capturing lots of phenomenon and kind of pooling them together. Um, And I really think we need to think about them in terms of these different modules if we're going to understand mechanism because a lot of people are trying to attribute a mechanism to the whole clock, which I don't think is going to be possible. You have, you know, you have CPGs that gain methylation with age, CpGs that lose methylation. They're in very different regulatory type regions. And I think we need to take all that biology into account um, when we're actually trying to assess these differences between cpgs
1: and then find out how big the impact of one single mechanism would be in the end if it's such exactly. a big thing yep so thank you mark for your time and for being on the show yeah
2: absolutely thank you for having me
0: thanks for listening to this episode of the epigenetics podcast from active motif we hope you enjoyed it you can find all the mentioned references in the show notes please rate review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.